Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. And we're back with an all-new Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Bertel. And I'm Aida Osman. Hello. And more importantly, happy birthday, Ira. Oh, I didn't even <laughs> I didn't even realize that it was my birthday. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> You're feeling yourself a little too much today. I know Leo, Leo season. Fine. Leo season can start. Y'all can have it now. Home listeners may not understand this, but Ira is a living human being with organs and feelings and therefore does celebrate a birthday and it happens to be today. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Bo. I had a lovely evening into my birthday. Ate some cake uh-huh. mm. from Milk Bar. Okay. Watched an episode of Buffy. Did some crying. Ooh, so quintessential Ira. Yeah. Was it an emotional right. episode of Buffy or is something the matter? Uh, I mean, there's always something the matter. But oh, okay. yes, it was, yeah. it was the one where she killed Angel season two. Oh, got it. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Went, and That's then that, that Sarah McLaughlin pound puppy song plays. Don't let so. it be. Don't let it be. <laughs> pound puppies is, should be the name of that song. Yeah. Uh, actually, I think it's a different song, but they, they both sound the same. I don't really rock with Sarah McLaughlin except in Buffy. <laughs> Weirdly, I don't either, as in I'm not a super fan, but I do love each of her singles. Like, I don't dislike any song she's ever put out. Building a Mystery, Adia, whatever. It's all great. Possession is the underrated one that um, Lilith Fair uh, unfamiliar listeners might not know. Oh, y'all are deep. I know Angel. I know Pound Puppy Song, and I call it a day. <laughs> That's literally it. But I'm glad you had a good birthday. Do you have anything planned for the rest of the day? Uh, yeah, I'm going to have a cute little dinner. A friend is cooking me a dinner. Mm-hmm. So okay, going to visit the red table. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, for your birthday, you can invite yourself to the red table? Is that how it Yes, works? yes. There's some okay. healing that needs to be done. <laughs> well, I'm 34. I'm myself. Now- because, I mean, Truly. now technically you are in your mid-30s. I mean, what, what does that feel like? By the way, I will literally be there one week from today, so we'll be having the same birthday conversation next week. Will we? <laughs> will we be having that conversation? It does seem to be up to you. That's true. <laughs> I would not like to have that conversation. I have to tell you that. <laughs> uh, well, also yeah. next week we may know if she's VP, so we will be having that conversation. Mm. Oh, my God. Whew. All sorts of treats. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I am very excited about today's episode, actually, because we will be joined by playwright and television creator now, Katori Hall, of the new show, just renewed for season two, yesterday, P-Valley on Stars, Which is sensational. I'm so glad I watched Mm -hmm. five episodes. Yeah, (laughs) It's so fucking good. Uh, And... The original title, of course, is Pussy Valley. Which is fun to say. That was the name yes. of the play that it was based on. I just think that we should say things as they were meant to be said, Aida. So mm-hmm. if I have Their to government say, name. So if I have to say pussy this early in the morning, I'm going to say pussy. I know. It's just like the P is so P. 
key, you know? You're really pushing it for okay. me. Okay. This pussy girl, talk do you English, do. Spanish, and French. what was the last play to be adapted into a tv show i immediately thought of tracy letts's uh superior donuts which was turned into a sitcom that resembled the play not at all i think that might be it yeah that's an interesting situation superior donuts was shockingly a more disappointing tv show than it was a play and that's all i have to say about that (laughs) <laughs> Ever since Ordinary People, I've rooted for Judd Hirsch, but I mean, the donuts, uh, slightly inferior. Yes. Wonderful. I'm going to get back to y'all when I start reading plays. <laughs> don't start. We're going. Don't, if you're going to read a Tracy Letts, <laughs> if you're going to start with Tracy Letts, do not start with Superior Donuts, baby. Okay. Because okay, good. Good to Superior know. Superior Donuts is one of those stories about like a cranky old white man who um, has a come to Jesus moment because of a young black man that enters his life. Oh, I remember this because Jermaine Fowler is in this. Jermaine Fowler is in the, was in the TV love. show. He's, <laughs> he's, yeah. He okay, is I'm so with funny. You. I'm on board. I'm on board now. He's hilarious. He's hilarious. I love him. I might just watch it just to see that fine man do his fine man things. Jermaine Fowler is hilarious and he is fine, um, but it's just not my kind of story. I don't love helping old white men. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Even when I've slept with them in the past, I don't help them. I helped myself. Wow, girl. Well, I think technically by sleeping with them, you made them worse. So I think that that was good. Yeah. That's the doctor who won't call me back. Anyway, uh, (laughs) we're also going to get into some folklore. Sure. Okay. And then we've got a little thing called the Emmy nominations happening. Have I ever heard of them? Happening truly, truly as we speak. So you will get our takes hot off the press and they won't be so hot when you're listening to them, because they'll be a day after everyone else's takes, but ours are the most important. (laughs) Right. That's very true. And the most knee-jerk, so get ready for that. Yeah. Yeah, and it'll be a lot of me complaining about the show Ozark again, so Mm, mm. strap in, babies. We'll be right back. Y'all, something wrong. I hold my head. Regis gone. Our nigga dead. Stop! Stop! <laughs> I don't need this. I need support. I need comfort. Listen, I don't need these. Regis stayed on in black households, okay? He is my father, my mother. He's everything to me. He awakened my love of knowledge and trivia. Like, this man is everything for me. Truly the father I never had. I saw, when you <laughs> tweeted that, I saw you tweeted, Regis stayed on in black households. Did you mean primarily because of the Kathy Lee show or the, the Kelly show or because of Millionaire? Both. Oh, yeah. I feel, mm-hmm. I feel like people watched Millionaire because of Regis. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You know, like, we, we tuned in because, like, we loved Regis from back in the day. Definitely. You know, like, Regis and Kathy were it. They were, like, the white friends who would come over and visit, just bringing gifts, being funny, being wacky, and you'd let them. And yeah, you would let them stay. Yeah. Which is rare. That's, that, that's exactly what they were. And I always was thrown by their age difference, but there was something so endearing about it. I mm. loved it. I yeah. loved them. It's not a thing of sitcoms. Like, like there are a, a lot of, like, you know, black people, working class. There was the one white friend of your mom's <laughs> who was, who was yeah. always over. Yeah. Uh, like, usually a coworker or a neighbor. Uh-huh. But, um, Mine was a Julie. She tufted rugs. She was very kind. I let her stay. We loved her. We loved mm, having Julie over. Mine was a, my mom's coworker. Um, 
she was Jewish. And so we used to do like Jewish holidays. Oh my God. Oh, that's cute. Now, Regis yeah. to me was like, the point of that show is always Regis announcing that he went to dinner with his wife Joy last night. Which yes. Is just, <laughs> we had to hear about it every time. Every time we had to hear about it. Well, he had to eat dinner every night. Yes, yes. right. Yes. <laughs> Who they'd run into, where they went, like what they saw, if they saw a play or a movie or something. That is the old days of like talk shows that I truly, really mm-hmm. miss. And honestly, why I love even like doing this show, like just like not to be so uh, saccharine about it, you know, but I think the one thing about podcasts is that you are listening to people and you get to know them every week. And I'm sure some people come here to hear us talk about bullshit like Taylor Swift albums and, you know, all my, my Omarosa jokes. But, <laughs> you know, I think they also get attached to parts of our lives you know we talked about that last week with Aminatu and Anne you know like they get attached to what we deliver them from our lives and Regis was really just sort of that quintessential person who when you tuned in he wasn't just some celebrity like interviewing people you know you were also Mm -hmm. finding out more about Regis every day I we've had a lot of deaths every week but this one hurts he also had like a genuine just enthusiasm about everything it did not feel contrived even though he also is like the last vestige of somebody who comes from old school broadcasting so the way he said everything had just that kind of radio feel or had the feel of like you know like a a talk show host from the 50s or something like that yes i happen to rewatch old episodes of who wants to be a millionaire i know twist my arm but (laughs) two things i loved about him on that show one during the fastest finger part where the contestants have to get a multiple choice question correct and then Regis calls off the person who got it in the fastest time and pulls them to the stage, whenever he called their name, the contestant would first be terrified because Regis was screaming the name at them. So funny every time. And then secondly, <laughs> this thing would happen on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire when like a contestant would need a lifeline early on. Like whatever, they needed to ask the audience because they didn't know how the phrase duck, duck, blank, and it did, right? And then Regis would turn to the audience and he goes, well, I guess our friend needs a little help here. Like that. (laughs) Always like sympathetic, but knowing it was so stupid. He was always so good at handling things like that. But also would always clown someone's lifeline when it was the call a friend and the friend was like unuseful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fully, fully. He liked to test you if he's like, are you really sure? Are you sure about that final answer? And... Yeah, I just love him. He's just hilarious. He really he really knows how to mess with you. He could have been an actor for real. And I do actually remember from being a child, him doing uh, appearances on WrestleMania and Lilo and Stitch and being like, yep, yes. I can hear the Regis. The Regis in the voice. Mm. I do want to say, though, that Regis is the rare case of somebody who was a pre-existing celebrity in one format and then became an amazing game show host. Most of the time, I hate when celebrities become game show hosts because there's a whole set of skills that goes along with being a great MC, and it's it has nothing... You talk about Drew Carey. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's doing fine. He's doing fine. But I'm just saying, like, we give things like the host of Press Your Luck to Elizabeth Banks, who is, a, like, a, a talented person, but... There's a whole different set of skills that goes with making a contestant feel comfortable that is not, we liked you in some comedies before. I don't know. I'm always a little bit wary when a celebrity jumps into that position. Mm -hmm. Cedric the Entertainer, I enjoy. Oh, on Millionaire? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's fun. And and Steve Harvey on Feud. Yeah, Steve Harvey's good (laughs) on Feud. He knows how to do that. Yeah. He definitely knows. He really, like, makes a meal out of every moment with each individual <laughs> member of that family. Like, he'll hold a stare for a minute and a half, like, where there's no gameplay. 
it's that same honestly abhorrent like menacing quality of like i'm gonna fuck with you because i know i have the power right now and yeah. he plays it up super well with all them little Lil yeah. is not the right word for his teeth. But, but. also, as you recall, <laughs> do not enter Steve Harvey's dressing room. Right. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. Aida doesn't know what this is. Oh, what are you talking the, about? Like, a couple years ago, there was a story where he, like, sent a memo to his staff of, like, do not enter my dressing oh, room. No. Don't oh, no. Oh, no. contact with me. <laughs> it, it was it was rude, but also correct. Yeah, he invented contactless delivery before. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> uh, we also lost this week Olivia de Havilland. My God, oh. an actress. <laughs> Quite two Oscars when she died. A lot of people tweeted at me about it, and I was like, "This is strange. Why is this happening?" We talked about her last week on this show. How fucking crazy mm-hmm. is that? But you talk. I feel like you talk about Olivia De Havilland every day. I was Lewis. gonna say, <laughs> boo, <laughs> don't try and make right. this a coincidence. You're making permanence a coincidence, and I won't have it, bro. No, no way. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, uh-uh. Here's the thing. Nobody is surprised she died. But at the same time, but at the same time, Truly, you, the bitch you was 104, okay? Right. Like and every day oh. that she was still alive, I was constantly like, well, damn, she is really going to stay alive so she can ruin Ryan Murphy's life. <laughs> but like at the same time, you kind of thought she would never die. So it was mm-hmm. a really strange, like, thing in your brain that you couldn't reconcile that was just awesome that we got to like have for so long. But I mean, she really is the last bridge to you know, a completely ancient era of movies. I mean, this is somebody who debuted on the screen in 1935. I want to be clear, that is Alfred Hitchcock's old career. Not even, <laughs> like, the end of Alfred Hitchcock's career. Right. But um, so, so many incredible performances. If you can find The Heiress, which isn't streaming anywhere, almost anywhere, but you get, you get her and you get hot Montgomery Clift. Monty. Yeah. She did what needed to be done in The Heiress. The Heiress <laughs> is a hot movie. Totally, totally. And you know I love Montgomery Cliff. One of the hotties of all time. And also, back when like hot people had torture in their eyes, like you were trying to decode what was wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Robert Pattinson. There, yes, see, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was, was she cremated? I want to get my Gone with the Wind joke off. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That was the whole thing. I'm sorry for your loss, Lewis. I am very sorry whenever one of your white women dies. Like, I really do. <laughs> Uh, I do. <laughs> I want to also highlight how utterly ridiculous this white woman was. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. I was reading this uh, Vanity Fair profile of her that was done in her last days. And so she basically left the U.S. because she was sick of the movie industry. <laughs> she was like, this is not the movie industry that I remember, which it's not the old glamour anymore, which is hilarious because I would say that, like, her age of cinema, like, after it is, like, a truly glamorous, amazing age of cinema. Oh, yeah. But uh-huh. I guess, if, you know, if you're coming from where she's from, someone who also started, you know, like, out in Shakespeare and thought that she wanted to do that and wished that she had done that and wished that she had also, like, gone to school instead of becoming, like, an actress. Like, for her, she was probably just, like, I ain't got time for this shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, the profile even mentions that, like, she moved to Paris, and, like, she wasn't even, like, hanging out with, like, Truffaut, you know, or Godard. Like, like she wasn't <laughs> even up in the French cinema scene. Like, she was truly done. Uh, just hanging out with, like, royalty and um, going to parties and talk, having salons. But she was 
obviously remembered because of her feud with her sister, Miss mm-hmm. <laughs> Fontaine. They're also, I believe, the only two sisters who both have Oscars. They were the first sisters to be nominated in the same year. Eventually, uh, Lynn and Vanessa Redgrave would also be nominated in the same year, but Lynn never won an Oscar. So Yeah. And so they have that feud, but there's the story she tells about how like she was back in the U.S. and what really sort of ended it for her was she was at this party and there was this old man looking at her who, and like the way she tells it, like it's like this ghost, this homeless man just like staring at her like about to murder her. And then all of a sudden she feels like a kiss on the back of her neck and someone says, Olivia. And then she looks and like, who is it? And they say, it's Errol. And she realizes this arrow fled, and she's like, he's aged so much, and doesn't look like the young man that was, like, sexy and in films with her and um, abusing women. Right. But anyway, yes. um, <laughs> they sit down for a dinner, and then he starts, like, flirting with and talking to all the younger actresses and everything, too. And th- I think that's when she was like, this is not my place anymore. And I feel like part of it was her also being, like, realizing that, like, as you age in Hollywood, like, there's no use for you as a woman. Right, right. So I feel like part of her, like, story of, I left for Paris, I was over Hollywood, et cetera, was also part of, like, the misogyny of the era, too. Right. She had a couple of notable parts in her, like, in the 60s and 70s. She was in Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, which she did as a favor to Betty Davis. And then she's in, like, the unbelievably shitty disaster movie The Swarm yes. which which also features my girl Lee Grant look her up best supporting actress yes. 1975 also what's the private elevator film oh A Lady in a Cage A Lady yeah. in a Cage <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mess <laughs> that was chronicled on Feud and of course yes. one of the last her last acts was suing Ryan Murphy for the way she was portrayed in Feud which remains my favorite thing Ryan Murphy has ever done even if it completely dramatizes okay. the Joan Crawford Betty Davis Feud which was not the story it was made out to be on that show also played by Miss Catherine Zeta-Jones correct yes which is a weird fit yeah. it is um, I mean I feel like maybe now that she's gone the better feud that wouldn't be trumped up so much as the Joan and Betty one was um, would be Olivia and her sister. Yeah, I mean, Olivia literally called Joan Fontaine Dragon Lady once upon a time. So yeah. this is the like age old story of, of Joan's threatening to kill her sister at like nine, right? Like as a young child. Correct, correct. No. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of piecing together like, is somebody here mentally ill maybe? Like it's, yeah. But, I mean, God bless. We got her, and we had Joan Fontaine for a long time, too. So, I mean, it's pretty. It's a pretty incredible duo altogether. Yeah, she died around, like, 2013. Right? Mm-hmm. So, like, she stayed in the game for a minute, too. <laughs> that would be an epic story to tell. Yeah, right. I, and, and I think it will be, obviously, now that they're both gone. As long as Ryan doesn't do it. You never know. He will. Don't worry. If I know Ryan Murphy in any way, shape, or form, he gonna get the rights and do the thing. <laughs> That's what he does. If an, if an old woman gets a monologue, look out for Ryan Murphy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we dive into these Emmy nominations, there is also some other great news this week. Shea Coulee Woo! won Drag Race All-Stars as we all knew she would. We love to see it. We love to see Literally, it. Literally, who else was going to win? I mean, Jujubee was also great this season, but it was pretty much Shea Coulee's to lose. I personally don't even enjoy a season where I know who's going to win by the end of it. Like, I was for Shay with Shay the whole time. There was no, there, it was not a mystery at all. Absolutely not at all. I give credit to the show for delaying or throwing a couple wrenches into play to make you think the inevitable wasn't going to happen. But 
I mean, at the end, like you would you would never pick in this season Ms. Cracker over <laughs> Shea Coulee. I mean, like Ms. Cracker was amusing, but Shea Coulee, like just the exquisiteness of her looks, the and precision, the way, yes, the and the, just like the calculated way she would come into like just uh, give you personality and like jokes about how she lost the past season. She had planned it so hard, and uh, you just can't argue with that kind of gameplay. Congrats. The season as lackluster as it was. Um, mm-hmm. She was great, obviously. I thought Jujubee was great. Jujubee, fabulous. I've been really enjoying Drag Race Canada. Oh, Al- girl. Although I have a bone to pick <laughs> with some people who continue to say that the judges are too mean. <laughs> I would say that's the prevailing sentiment about that show, that the judges yeah. are altogether too mean. And I, here's where I'll um, sympathize. I feel like they're trying to imitate the judges on Drag Race but like Jeffrey Boyer Chapman does not have a gift for sauciness and so he compensates for what I would call just mean comments mm-hmm. I would say he is the mean one I definitely think that Stacey McKenzie is very constructive I love mm-hmm. her she's my favorite judge she's great always looks great yeah. yes um, Brooklyn Heights is fun mm-hmm. the looks aren't always as snatched as Rue's are mm-hmm. but there, it has sort of like this janky a bit ghetto, a bit hood um, <laughs> sense to it, you know? The first season, like the first season of mm-hmm. Drag Race was. And maybe that's also what just connects it with Legendary. I feel like Drag Race has become so overproduced, so mainstream, yeah. um, so much geared towards middle American white women in the way that a lot of gay entertainment eventually becomes so that it can become successful um, and it's not really on the fringe anymore um, and Drag Race at least feels like it is being geared towards gay people. I just assume like mostly gays have WoW Presents Plus you know <laughs> um, that the WoW the World of Wonder streaming service not Kirsten in Idaho Falls Right, right. But Which by the way is how you watch Drag Race Canada, the WoW Presents app if you want to get into it. Only a yeah. few episodes have aired so far so you're not yeah, behind. I just love the Ooh. like um, fact that it feels like a little fresh. You know, it's not insanely mainstream right now, and I really do think that, like, unfortunately, RuPaul in sort of promoting himself through Drag Race has sort of made the show sort of predictable, and also it's just become not what it was you know you watch the show and everything is a commercial for a new rupaul song or Mm -hmm. rupaul's podcast or something else and it's just this commercialization of queerness that feels a lot like the way gay pride parades are like brought to you by bank of america right Mm -hmm. (laughs) no by the way there's something i do like about that even the horrible corporate nature of it it's like oh you see me like like you a corporate entity look at gay queer people and see a dollar sign in some way i'm oddly flattered that's all i can say (laughs) yeah yeah commodify me baby at least you see me true But RuPaul shouldn't be the corporate entity, you know? Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. And and I shouldn't decry Ru because Ru went through shit, you know, in the 90s yeah. and 80s, you know, like to get to where Ru is now. But unfortunately. From Crooklyn to here? Yes, mm-hmm. from Crooklyn to here, from you know? Yeah, this was here? not inevitable. This was not an yeah. inevitable thing. Yeah. But I, I think what it should be is RuPaul should separate himself from the show and do RuPaul branding and just be RuPaul. You can afford to do that now and someone else can do Drag Race. Girl, we are ready. The girls are ready. I think the one thing I like about Drag Race Canada is just the sort of absence of RuPaul, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Ru seems to want to be this um, Brene Brown, Ellen DeGeneres uh, Mm -hmm. character now, which, which is great. You've earned it, baby. 
but yeah. also makes the show not what it was. That makes me yearn for RuPaul's Game of Games because I think that would be a specific kind mm. of torture. That'd be exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're ready for these Emmy nominations. They're coming in. They're coming in. I'm super excited. I just got word that Big Mouth got nominated. Oh, how exciting. For an animated show. I know. And Jimmy Kimmel, so look at us. Oh, <laughs> did we provide entertainment for everybody? You're welcome. Did we? Did a little oh, something for the kids. Well, it's so nice of you two to finally be a part of um, Emmy-nominated writing team. Girl, chill, chill with the finally, chill with the finally. As you know, I was, oh, I God. was, I was a part of an Emmy-nominated television series as an actor. Okay, uh-huh. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Tell, speak on that. And you were nominated yes. for what exactly? Eviction from the yeah. Big Brother house. <laughs> Girl, I wish, <laughs> but I would be winning. Big Brother. <laughs> you know I could win Big Brother. I think, well, I, I think any queer person has the ability to win Big Brother because it's about making people believe you're their best friend when, in fact, you're yes. just keeping them at bay. <laughs> yes, strategizing yes. is in our blood. I mean, um, R.I.P. Megan Amram, but oh, um, no. I was in an Emmy for Megan, which was nominated for an Emmy last year. Oh, you were in an Emmy for Megan, huh? Yeah, yeah. Billy on the Street was nominated for Variety Series the last time I wrote on the, a season. Don't worry, we're all in the game, sweetie. Okay, well, fine. Well, then let's just celebrate me. I don't know who Billy is, and I've never heard of a street. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but these nominations, these nominations. Yes, yes. First of all, Zendaya. Great Euphoria. nomination. Euphoria. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I'm, I'm ready. Because wasn't she, she snubbed for a Golden Globe? Yes. I'm sure she yes. was. What an, that's like such an unusual show that goes darker than you expect, but then also like eventually like lighter than you expect too. So, I mean, she brings and, yeah. you so much dimension on that show. Yeah. I've been finally diving into it with my friend Royce, and um, I would say that the show is so incredibly earnest, mm-hmm. um, but also, yes, it, it, it gives you that dark sort of salacious almost ADHD storytelling in that it went from scene to scene, music cues, even for just like a walk down a hallway. Uh, It's almost music Mm video-esque, but it feels very like earnest. It's telling a very sweet story amidst everything, and I think that's why it connects with younger millennials, Gen Z people, you know? I think that um, it's sort of that commodification of the storytelling that we were doing, you know? We had shows that blended horror and comedy, and then we had things that were very saccharine and earnest, and I think that this manages to be both of them. So, I'm very happy for Euphoria. I'm checking out the supporting actor in a comedy series nominations. Uh, Dan Levy's in the house. That's very exciting. Of course, we love of to course. see that. And also, Keenan Thompson, who is entering okay. his 74th season on Saturday Night Live, and I believe <laughs> it's well, de- well deserved. Which is wild after 20 seasons of Keenan and Kel. Or oh, in 15 of all that. So I don't know how he's <laughs> yeah. making time. But I mean, I feel like Shit's Creek always is going to appear. As long as Shit's Creek has a season, it's going to be up there. I'm a big fan of every single person on that show. Congrats to Rami, who you guys know I love because I love Muslim comics who got nominated for lead actor in a comedy series, who we know got the Golden Globe. But I didn't actually know if he was going to show up on the Emmy nominations. But lo and behold, thank Allah, he is here. So we'll see what happens. But he's going up against a lot of people. Which which reminds me, like, the TV nominations for the Golden Globes are the Wild Wild West. We've talked about how yes. they get nominated for a variety of reasons. Like, the show is very new, and they want to award the newness mm-hmm. more than the quality of the show. So you never know how this is going to translate to the Emmys. Yes. But, I mean, I'm looking at Yvonne Orji nominated for Insecure. Yes. Uh, uh, Annie Murphy's nominated. Cecily Strong is nominated from Saturday Night Live. Uh, low-key SNL hero, always dependable. Yep. Those are exciting nominations. Uh. Like I, I love that. I also do have a question. 
what is the Kaminsky method? <laughs> Who I, is people that girl? are always talking about the Kaminsky method. <laughs> and I thought at first I thought it was a limited series. I thought it was a movie. Now it apparently is a comedy series that is still on. We have never heard of this. All I know is that it exists and that Alan Arkin does Alan Arkin y snark on it, I suppose. Alan Snarkin, that's him. There's no other there's nothing else you can know about that. It do- looks like Grace and Frankie for men. What is this? <laughs> right. I really don't know what it's about. Gary and Frank is the name of the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By the way, I think the the category to watch this year might be supporting actress in a limited series or movie, which gives you Holland Taylor and Hollywood, which she was fabulous in. That's a great nomination. Uzo Aduba, Margot Martindale, and Tracy Ullman from Mrs. America, a show that I swear existed, and I once talked to you about every week on this show, but nobody has talked about it since. Kate <laughs> uh, Blanchett, obviously nominated too. And then Tony Collette, yes. Unbelievable, and then Gene Smart and Watchmen. Oh, dope. Probably Gene Smart will take it. That said, it's a great category. I'm proud of that. We also have Sarah Snook and Nicholas Braun, Kieran Culkin, yes, Matthew McFadden. Baby. Basically, the Emmy said the entire cast of Succession <laughs> is getting nominations. Succession? Succeeded. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Which is great because it is white excellence. Okay. Like the talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah, there's a small yes. category of okay. white okay. excellence, yes. yes. Matthew McFadden, 2005 Pride and Prejudice Hive Rise Up. Yeah. I mean. White boy magic, okay? Mm-hmm. White boy magic. <laughs> Speaking of white excellence, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that Killing Eve has gone in the d- creative direction that they've gone in, and that's all I'll say about that. But uh, love me some Jodie Comer, and I hope that she gets whatever she deserves, whatever the woman deserves. I would like her to be a multiple Emmy winner myself. I concur on that one. True, true. Miss Betty Gilpin. Duh. Yeah. Dylan McDermott. Still the finest man that's ever been on TV. Definitely. And also Jim Parsons nominated for Hollywood. Uh, Okay, Mm. the end of Hollywood was, I think as we discussed in the show, very crazy. And like, made you wonder why we did this exercise all (laughs) together. But Jim Parsons as a nefarious gay guy of yore, like a manipulative studio exec type, it really worked for me. I really enjoyed dark Jim Parsons and hope we get more of that. Were there also only three sketch series this year? Probably so. I'm, I'm so happy for a Black Lady sketch show, but also it just feels like there are three shows were nominated. I strongly believe that Sherman's Showcase should have been nominated. Yes. Drop It Low for Jesus deserved a nomination yes, alone. Truly. And I think you should leave. Tim Robinson was a wonderful show. I'm not quite sure why it's not here either, but I might be the acceptance period of when they can be nominated. Also, Astronomy Club was done dust. Girl, girl. By Netflix. Truly. By Netflix, too. By literally everyone. And it was such a good show. I recommend you watch it immediately. I just want to reiterate before we wrap this up, supporting actress in a drama series. I mean, inevitably, one of your faves of all time is in here. It's Laura Dern, Meryl Streep, Helena Bottom Carter, Samira Wiley, Fiona Shaw, Julia Garner, Sarah Snook, Tandy Newton. (sighs) I mean, it sounds like a gay guy talking in his sleep. I mean, look, yeah. (laughs) Samira Wiley. I love her so much. Where's Angela Bassett? Girl being 64 and fine somewhere. (laughs) Where is Angelica Ross? They killed her ass. The Emmy's could have given her a nom. I know, I know. That is actually, (laughs) um, I would say, a shocking sort of... A little snub. Snub, if you will. Uh, Billy Porter is nominated for Pose, but... Otherwise, poses. There's no pose at all except for Billy Porter. That's devastating. It's also just unfortunate. I mean, shows at the Emmys like peak. Like if they have a gigantic year, it's yeah. unlikely generally that they will keep it up season to season to season. Like Breaking Bad's an exception. You know, Miss Maisel. I keep having to look at. <laughs> yeah, remember when we accidentally just gave Jane Lynch another Emmy? Like the other. What? She's like, whatever. I'll take it. 
And now she's going to be a weakest link host. This is what I'm saying about game show hosts. <laughs> Jane Lynch will do a good job at that, though. Yeah, I, I think just, so. I feel like she's got the snide you need. Uh, I will just say that um, to wrap up, um, I'm very excited, you know, for people like Yvonne, you know, um, Annie Murphy, Dan Levy, and Billy Porter, obviously. Um, but I am a little shocked, you know? I mean, I think that the narrative really is always that, like, quote unquote, the people on Pose aren't great actors, you know? Um, but I would disagree. And I just rewatched like the second season. Yeah, um, same. When it hit Netflix, and um, I just think MJ Rodriguez is phenomenal, um, and mm-hmm. so is India Moore. And um, I really think that there's still work to do in terms of Emmy nominations and um, what we see as um, quote unquote Emmy material. You know? Yeah. And I'm very happy about the way, act, like, we're moving toward this more kind of naturalistic slice of life way of acting where everything is subtle and everything is subdued. But I like a performance, bitch, and the people on Pose give you that. So mm, that mm. is what I enjoy about that show. They're not bad actors. They are truly acting. Ha! Huh! I'm acting. Girl. <laughs> <laughs> All right, when we're back, we'll be joined by Miss Katori Hall. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. We are so excited to have here Memphis native Katori Hall, who is an Olivier award-winning playwright. Okay, fuck the Tonys. Yeah, Olivier. <laughs> Olivier is where it is at. Uh, the first black woman to do it as well. Yes. And now showrunner of P Valley, the new show on Stars, which is everything. <laughs> Truly everything. We love this show. Yes. Thank you. I'm so happy. I'm so happy you guys love it. I'm so happy. Yeah, it's just like in this era, too, of hustlers, you know, like I Mm -hmm. feel like people are like, 
yes, let's see a series about um, women working in a strip club in the South, but it is so much more than that, you know, like to yes. just even compare it to that is um, basic, you know, it, it is just so, it is so full of the lives of these black people in the South and it just feels mm-hmm. so urgent it feels so necessary. You're just really getting these full depictions of their lives. And like, of course you're a playwright. The dialogue in the series alone is worth the price of admission. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we be working hard on that dialogue. I'm like, we got to do the volley, y'all. It got to be the red tap tap boom tap tap you know. It has to have its own kind of music, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad to, that you're noticing it. So <laughs> this originated as a play. And in turning it to a TV series like what were the critical elements you wanted to keep and then what had mm. to change in order to make it into you know the TV show that we now love it's interesting so <laughs> the the play version was the culmination of six years of, of research like mm-hmm. I went all over the nation I, I mean I, we did a, a, a deep 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 dive um, and so when I saw the play version I was just like ooh child this is a lot <laughs> like this is this is three and a half hours, which is like, you know, most people are like, they ain't sitting in a play for no three and a half hours. Um, and it was like this, this particular parenthesis that was just like screaming to be broken open. So I knew what was in front of me was a TV show. The fact that you had these characters that you wanted to stay with for years, not just for three and a half hours. The story was very contained. It was all set inside of the club. And, you know, as a black woman who grew up in the South, you know, I have so many things I want to write about in terms of talking about racism, unpacking this inheritance of poverty and just oppression. And so I was just like, how can I, you know, meld all of my experiences as a black woman to all of this research that I've done with these uh, strippers and in these strip clubs and using these amazing, lovable characters. And so I would say the biggest thing that I took from the play version was just the characters. They, the Uncle Clifford's, the, you know, the LaMurda, the you know, Mercedes, like everyone just stayed intact because I knew that even in the theatrical form, audiences love being in the room with these people. And so, you know, it's like, bloop, you take them out of the play and then now you have this open-ended, you know, hopefully years-long uh, story that you can tell with these characters. And with that ingredient, that basic ingredient of the characters, I was able to tell all of the stories that I have been wanting to tell um, beyond the strip club. And, you know, with Stars being the network that we landed at, um, they were just really open to this humanization project and the fact that I wanted to go and bust beyond the walls and, and take on um, these very almost Shakespearean themes when it comes to being black in the South. Mm-hmm. You know, what? one thing that I have really enjoyed about it too is just seeing these um, interior lives of um, Southern black people, which is what we mm. don't see on television. We don't see on film that much, you know, unless we it's some slave, it. some, some slave shit, you know? Because uh, like, you know, I'm, I'm, from, I'm from Milwaukee, but everyone in my family mm-hmm. before then was born in Tennessee. Uh, my mom was the last one born in Tennessee before uh, they came okay, up from high school. Yes, yeah, Tennessee. Yeah, Tiptonville, Tennessee. Literally a yes. town of like a thousand people. Been there once. Yeah. Hot as fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I ain't going there again. <laughs> no. um, but um, 
how do you feel, you know, just about representations of Black people in general? And what do you want to tell differently? We've seen so many yeah. different representations of Black people, I feel like, on TV now. But so much of them are like the Olivia Popes, you know? Like, yeah. existing in these white spaces or their... Um, upper middle class black people, you know, like a blackish, you know, like a black AF, you know, and it Absolutely. is rare that we see something like this that also gets to be written by black people, you know, like it's not Treme. Absolutely. Child, I am so happy that you, you're asking this question because I've always been very frustrated with, I would say, this very kind of West Coast, East Coast representation of black life. Mm -hmm. And growing up, this Southerner who moved to the North, you know, was in New York City for school and uh, was often made fun of by, by even my best friend, you know, the way I talk. Like, I would wear my socks up real high, which was hella country. And, like, it was <laughs> country ghetto. This was, that's what she said. So it was this thing of never really seeing my specific self, my culturally specific self reflected in what I think the mirror that media can be. And so I do feel as though there's been these slight representations of black folks down south. Like I think about True Blood, I think yes. about the character Lafayette, you know, uh, which a lot of people uh, think of when they think about Uncle Clifford. But I'm like, no, they're, they're very, they're very different. <laughs> they're very yes. different. Um, but that aside, I just feel as though there is when we think about the South, you know, slavery comes up real quick in our minds. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that tends to be the representation of Black South that I would say Hollywood um, puts out into the world, even though, you know, there's Queen Sugar now. But, you know, mm -hmm. that's been in the what, past five years. And so I had this deep desire to just really create something that was truly from my particular heritage like not everybody who grows up in the south and, and who's black talks like the way that my characters speak but i know that my family speaks that way i know that my family used to be sharecroppers i know that even my mother had to pick cotton even though slavery did not exist mm. and so i really wanted to put forth what i think is a, a very complicated space as as a black southerner where you are truly in the past and present simultaneously like you are constantly being reminded of your history and and i feel as though this story this world is an opportunity to very much be unapologetic about all of that and to highlight and embrace things that a lot of people are like oh i didn't know black folks you know did the do-rags all the time and it's like you know we can just be ourselves and be free in a way that um does not have this kind of white gaze upon us and also doesn't necessarily have this uh i would say respectability politics mm -hmm. uh within uh the the black gaze that i know that a lot of people are subscribing to when it comes to what uh, good representations of black folks are. It's mm -hmm. just like, I want to be able to have my uncles and my dad and my mama to be like, yes, that's me. Katori got me right. Like, that's how I talk. That's how I interact in the world. Like, th that's the type of clubs that I go to. That's the church I go to. It is beautiful. It is very kind of Zora Neale Hurstian, and, mm. which is, you know, she is uh, a literary god of, of mine when it comes to um, the language and, and embracing us as our, our like, our black, you know, and country selves. Oh, yes. I literally just read Barracoon, uh, the story of the last black cargo that uh, 
nonfiction interview that she did with um, the last living survivor of the Middle Passage. Such a fucking amazing book. Oh, you just, oh, see, I haven't gotten a chance to uh, read it yet. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. So On the list. <laughs> I was thinking about what information I even know casually about strip club culture. And obviously, mm-hmm. it would be different in one part of the country than it is another. Like, our friend Diablo Cody wrote a book called uh, Candy Girl about her time as a stripper in Minneapolis and the sort mm. of the culture within the club and who has to pay who and like the hierarchy that's, that's going on in a club situation. Uh-huh. What were the things you got from researching that we would not intuitively guess about strip clubs or working in one or, you know, making a living off one. I think the biggest thing that I took from my research was, you know, there is this assumption that when you come into a strip club that people just taking off their clothes and, you know, it's a sad and seedy place. And yes, I will say that is true to some extent, but when it comes to these black Southern strip clubs, Like the athleticism, the skill set that is required to pull yourself up on that pole and the bravery that is required to turn yourself up down and fall from the sky. I think people don't understand how theatrical of an experience it is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this this idea of these women looking like super sheroes in the sky is something that is very foreign, I think, to most people. And when I would go to all of these clubs and and meet these women, you would get this visual of them just, like I said, being these, these wonder women and showing off how athletic and how much of a craft it is. But then they would like, you know, climb down off the pole and go backstage and just become like, like me. Like mm-hmm. this this human being complaining about her boyfriend, complaining about her dental bill, complaining about, you know, I, I hope I can pay the rent, you know, this mm-hmm. month. So it was this beautiful thing that I confronted and it enlightened me so much. Like there's this very thin line between the grit and glitter in this world. And so the fact that you have these amazing women who are doing an art form and then all of a sudden boom within you know the turn of a dime they just become so real and so raw that to me was the thing that i really wanted to make an audience understand that these women are our our sisters they're our mothers and that they have a lot to say about what it means to survive in the patriarchal system like the strip club to me it's just a metaphor for the world that women live in The fact that, yes, it's an extremely exploitative space, but somehow, by hook or by crook, these women who oftentimes are impoverished, oftentimes don't have that many choices, they figure out a way to liberate themselves. They figure out a way to claim financial freedom, create art in a space where people don't think art exists. It, to me, is a reflection of not only being a woman, but also just being a Black person in this world. And so going into these spaces, I really really saw myself I really saw my own struggles walking in the world and for me the show is really about a group of predominantly black women who just happens to be strippers Mm -hmm. I mean first response to that I mean um, the athleticism alone of there is a moment in episode three uh, and if 
y'all listening have not watched like episode three where Brandy Evans, who is fucking fantastic as Mercedes. Isn't she? Like, fucking her. fantastic. Uh, <laughs> the moment where um, she is on the pole and I think yeah. it shifts to just like, there's no sound and you're just hearing her breathing and it's almost her POV of her like on the ceiling and you're watching it and you're thinking like, is she gonna fall? Is this like telling us that like, she's like losing her breath, gonna fall or something? You're like, no, you're seeing the athleticism and you are seeing the strength that she has and now with such a beautiful moment to watch. When talking about these women surviving, you know, and especially in this patriarchal world, what I found really interesting is that the um, person who owns the club is Uncle Clifford, who is, you know, non-binary and um, uses pronouns she, um, and we're always seeing Uncle Clifford in these amazing fucking get-ups. And uh, I want to know a bit about your inspiration behind that and also your inspiration too behind just um depicting such great um representations of um black queer men that we don't get to see in your work because particularly um when i was in new york right before quarantine you know i saw your um new play hot wing king um which was you know like four fucking black gay men, you know, like um, entering a hot wing contest in Memphis. And, you know, I'm like, this is something that I have not seen before. Uh, and it just felt so exciting to watch parts of myself on stage um, in theater in a way that I hadn't really seen before, you know, except in like um, some of like Terrell McCraney's work or something, you know? Absolutely. So um, the, your first question about Uncle Clifford. Uncle Clifford's exist in this world. You know that, I know that, a lot of people know that. However, it's that thing of so much homophobia still existing within our community and our Uncle Clifford's don't get an opportunity to shine. So I always wanted the, the momager of the club to be someone who was queer. Initially, I was, you know, Uncle Clifford in the play version started off as a trans woman. Mm-hmm. But then I decided that because we hadn't seen that many non-binary representations in the media, I felt like actually the person that I had been striving for to create was someone who was feminine and masculine in equal measure. And so someone that was non-binary um, to me was just, you know, perfect for this Uncle Clifford that was in my mind. Now, in terms of who Uncle Clifford is based off of, so I got three living ancestors that had their <laughs> DNA embedded in Uncle Clifford. It's my mom who be scared of her because she don't take no mess. Uh, is my daddy who the same way like he he be carrying his gun all the time he be fishing but yet he's so nurturing he's so loving and then you got my real uncle clifford who can read you for fifth one second and kiss you on the forehead the next like that's just who he is and and you just gotta accept it and what's interesting is that none of them are queer But I wanted to make sure that the Uncle Clifford that I created was just felt so real. He's made from words. She's made from words, but definitely based off of life and painted from life. 
And that's why her personality is so off the chain because she just got all of these layers of people that I have seen and been with my entire life. But then, of course, there, I would say there's a, there is a bit of like, you know, Messy Maya up in Uncle Clifford. There's a bit of my, my brother who is gay. Um, that's all up in, in Uncle Clifford. Like, you know, Uncle Clifford is, is truly an homage to a community that, I feel truly needs to be represented in all the complexities and all the nuances that I have been able to witness. And so what's been so crazy is just how so many people have embraced Uncle Clifford. Like people that I didn't even know was going to be like, that's my favorite character. Like I remember had a conversation with Snoop Dogg recently. Isn't that crazy? Oh. Oh. <laughs> Um, and you know finding out loving Uncle Clifford loving Uncle Clifford (laughs) and that to me that's everything the fact that despite what we struggle with as a community they they see the human being they see the the love they see the mama hen the the tough talker the the pimp and the therapist all in this one person because quite frankly um, we all got a little Uncle Clifford inside of us and I just think it goes to show you like how powerful storytelling can be. Mm-hmm. The fact that you can take people who have been stigmatized and dehumanized or made invisible, completely invisible, put them in the living rooms of, of, of your Snoop Dogs, and for folks like that to be like, yeah, I fucks with Uncle Clifford. Like To me, that's a type of revolution in itself. Mm-hmm. I must bring up that you co-wrote the book for the Tina musical that every time I watch a clip of, I'm obviously living for the performance. The actress who plays her is just shocking. To me, writing a jukebox musical seems just impossible because you're stringing together songs that otherwise really have nothing to do with each other other than they belong on a greatest hits compilation with one another. So tell me about the struggle to put something like that together and is it hell on earth and are you okay? Man, it's crazy because Tina was my first musical. I love music and I think there's a musicality to my writing approach. But to take on such a gargantuan project like that, I don't know what was going through my mind. Like who who I thought I was to be, you know, <laughs> flying over to Switzerland and sitting across from Tina the Turner. <laughs> but There was something that I felt I needed to explore in writing her story. Like, I know that a lot of people think they know her story. And oftentimes we point to the What's Love Got to Do With It movie and we focus on the abuse. But I wanted to focus on her triumph. I wanted to focus on what was life beyond Ike. And I think you get a you get a, a taste of it and what's love got to do with it. But how did she do that? And I wanted people mm-hmm. to understand how she climbed up out of that abyss. And so I was like, okay, I got to do this. And plus, she a Southern girl. She from Tennessee, just like me. So I was like, I'm in. So going to Switzerland and sitting across from the queen um, was just transformative. It, it's it's life changing because you know you see this this icon. And you realize very quickly that she's a human being Mm -hmm. and she has struggled through what she didn't went through. uh, And yet she still, you know, persists like this woman has had kidney replacements. Like it's it's crazy how much she has survived. And so in terms of talking to her about the music and and how we were going to retell a story that people thought they knew. 
you know, she never actually wrote any of her songs. She only wrote one of her songs. It was Nutbush City Limits. And so we were just like, how are we going to, you know, use this music that, you know, belongs on a compilation album, right? How are we going to use this music to tell her story in a way that pushes the narrative forward and reveals character? If it's not her character, it's Ike's character, it's her sister, or her mother, whatever. So what was so interesting is like when I started listening to all of the music, I was like, Tina, you actually have been singing songs that were a reflection of your life at that time anyway. Like everything, like what's love got to do with it? Like she was tired of it. She was sick and tired of it all. And so she gravitated towards that song, even though she didn't like musically where it was. She was like, oh, this ain't really rock. I'm trying to be, you know, a rock singer. And this sound a little too synthy, a little too pop. And yet she still sang that song. So it was a tremendous task to just take this woman's catalog figure out where in her story we were going to use which song. And so we decided to give ourselves this rule and that we were going to be very anachronistic. We were going to use songs from the 80s in the 60s, mm-hmm. songs from the mm-hmm. 60s in the 80s, just because it you didn't necessarily need um, it to roll out linearly, even though we ended up telling her story in the musical in a linear fashion. And I think what we learned, you know, from audience members, like they just love, they love the fact that they could get a taste of all those hits and they were out of order and it was okay for them to go on that journey in that way. It worked, you know? I mean, I saw it after Adrian Warren came back after hurting her ankle and she had the brace she had the brace on and she fucking slayed that show it's so great and it's one of the better jukebox musicals like i've ever seen and i really thought it like really represented her i mean first of all i have a tina uh the movie the french what's love got to do with it poster up on my wall with my favorite actress miss angela bassett on it which brings me to my last question before we let you go you've worked with Queen Tina, and then you've also worked with Angela Bassett in your Broadway debut, um, The Mountaintop, um, her and Samuel L. Jackson, and that is a play about um, Martin Luther King's last day, and Angela Bassett plays uh, an angel who comes to visit him, you know, before he dies, and um, my question is just like, what's it like, one, working with Miss Queen Bassett, and two, she was on the show last year, um, too, and like, what stories are you just drawn to telling then? You're like, you like to- Martin Luther King's story, like P Valley, Tina Turner. Yeah, I must say I am drawn to ordinary, extraordinary people. You know, Tina is this girl from the cotton fields of Nutbush, Tennessee, and yet she became a rock and roll goddess. You know, Dr. King, this preacher in Atlanta changed the entire world quite frankly uh, you know still be a saint right you know a lot of people think of them as such and then these strippers these people who we don't respect a lot of people don't respect and yet what they can do with their bodies it goes beyond how their bodies look but it's about what their bodies can do they can take you to the sky on a saturday night i feel as though for me it's always about striving to show black folks, black women specifically, in unexpected ways and to reveal how extraordinary the most ordinary person is. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel as though it's about representing those who are voiceless, representing folks who have been made to feel invisible because I've been made to feel invisible in my life. 
I think that's the main reason why I even got into storytelling. It's like I wanted to see myself. I started out as an actor who was in libraries trying to pull plays off the shelf that had scenes for me and yet I couldn't find them. And so I was like, I'm going to write those plays then. And that's always been a part of my journey. Like, how can I revise the narrative? How can I add myself to the narrative? Because I truly do feel like existence is resistance. Mm -hmm. And um, then Miss Bassett. (laughs) You know what? She still, we still text. That's how. Oh my God. (laughs) We, she is. Obviously, you walk in. She's like the most beautiful person in the world. Yes. That's the chocolate skin that she has been blessed with. God just mm. made a reflection of herself in Angela Bassett. <laughs> just stunning. And also a stunning spirit. And what I love mm-hmm. so much about her is that you expect that people who got all that celebrity and whatnot, they just going to walk into the rehearsal room and they're going to start calling the shots. They're going to be bossy and whatnot. She was so humble. She was so hardworking. She never questioned everything. Everything was yes and. Yes and. And that's the best artist to work with. Like, she is truly a stunning human being um, from the Ruta to the Tuta. Like, as an artist, as a mother, as a director, you know, she, she just has everything. And I think that's why her art is so damn good because mm. of the depth that she has as, as a woman. Uh, walking in this world and I've just been so grateful that we've been actually been able to keep in touch because you know oftentimes when you're working on stuff you you form a little family for a little bit and then y'all kind of just you know go, go about your separate ways but not not Miss Bassett she's family mm. mm-hmm. oh, that's so that's good great. her like crackling vivacious consummate brilliance like she's always been that way I just rewatched the movie Passion Fish recently which she appears in for like six seconds and she gets like a moment and she's even fabulous in that so I think she might have a flawless career and I just want to say before you go shout out to my favorite Tina Turner song that gets no love Typical Male I just wanted to, everyone to go see Typical Male listen to Typical you Male you knew we were trying to figure out how to put it up in the show I was like yeah. oh, let's go <laughs> <laughs> oh but now she was like that's all right, Katora, but she's like, I like that song, though, just so y'all know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here, Katori. I mean, truly amazing person, amazing playwright, now amazing TV creator. Got a second season, already renewed. Yes, Cannot wait for more. Love everything about it. Thank you so much Aww. for everything. Thanks for letting me come on. I listen to you guys so oh. much. Yeah. That's yeah. incredibly flattering of us. I do. I do. <laughs> so I was so Thank excited you. to come on. When it comes to scents, you should pick ones that smell like, well, you. Target gets it, which is why they offer a range of personal care products with fragrances for everyone. Be true to floral you with Dove Peony and Rose Body Wash. Live your fresh life with Degree Ultra Clear Deodorant. Express your decadent side with Love Beauty and Planet Coconut Shampoo. This spring, choose care that brings you joy beyond labels. Pick up new favorites at a Target near you or online at Target.com. Taylor Swift seemed to be having as productive a quarantine as the rest of us. 
until last Thursday when she announced the surprise release of a new album. And we didn't have to wait long. Folklore dropped oh. to near universal praise. Probably her best reviewed album. Yeah. This is news to me. Taylor dropped an album? Yeah. She um <laughs> she changed the game with that digital drop. No, she didn't. No, but- she did not. I, I do not I do not know where I was. I am in sorry. That I'm pop. sorry. I'm sorry, Beehive. <laughs> okay. I was just it's joking. Okay. The only surprise drop I care about this week is Fenty Skincare Line, and that's all we heard about. That's all the girls and I heard about. So tell me about this Fucklore album. What's it called? You Fuck are lore? so fucking rude. Folklore? Listen, <laughs> Folklore, um, which she created with the help of Aaron Dessner of The National, who we love. We, like we the, love, We yes. love The National. Um, mm-hmm. Jack Antonoff also, you know, hops on some tracks. Because mm-hmm. uh, when isn't he on one of the white girls' pop albums? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all he does. He lives does. and breathes. He, just, he lives he and go, breathes. He goes from house to house, from Taylor's to Lottas <laughs> to Lord's to Carly's. To, <laughs> to the chicks. <laughs> like, all over the right. he, is, yeah. he is everywhere. He's the white yeah. whisperer. Yeah. I asked to work with him and he said no. <laughs> he only works with white women. Ah, <laughs> uh, he is a parna from Indian matchmaking. He is looking to work with someone a little bit more fair, okay? <laughs> fair skin, fair skin, fair skin and nice, please. Uh, but here's my thing about this album. Uh, we talked about Lover last year on the show. Um, and my thing about Taylor Swift has always been that um, her music, since its inception, when we started realizing that she wrote songs about her love interest, you know, and about uh, her reactions to how she's depicted in the press, uh, each album has sort of been a response to what people are thinking about her. Reputation was largely about the Kanye West, Kim Kardashian mm-hmm. drama. There was a lot of snake imagery because people were calling her a snake online. Then there was Lover, a sort of back-to-basics album of her really trying to get into songwriting and emotion because she felt that um, with reputation, she was ignored by the Grammys, like a place that has routinely... Um, celebrated her um and she really thought that she had to get it right and um weirdly during quarantine um this album feels it feels rushed but it also feels necessary in a way that i would say a taylor swift album has never felt and it's stripped down in terms of production and i feel like um that really highlights her songwriting I think she's a very good songwriter, you know, and um, an album like this wouldn't be able to hold up without good songwriting to go with the stripped down nature of it. You know, it's not 1989, yeah. uh, which is just bombastic, like pop and production and um, things to distract you from the lyrics of Shake It Off. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I feel like the thing Taylor Swift historically for me has done best is match the kind of high school drama of her lyrics with bombastic production. That's why I like 1989 the best. Like, Mm -hmm. it plays up the torrid relationships with, you know, really theatrical production. And so instinctively, I would say that something really pared down where you're focusing on the imagery of her songwriting would be something I dislike. But I would say for an album that really eschews a big pop hook, like, there's nothing super Swedish feeling about this album at all. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, It does carry me throughout it, even if I'm not obsessed with it. I still think her lyrics feature too much of what I would call, like, the the, the imagery is way too 
pleasing to me. Like everything, every mm-hmm. image she brings up to me sounds like desktop wallpaper or dorm room poster. Or, you know, it's like <laughs> it's all about like streetlights and lipstick and you know and just- Levi's and white shirts. I know exactly what you're saying. I'm acting like I didn't like the album, which I I didn't, but I do because <laughs> it is clearly. I, it's clearly a departure from her most recent work because I was so tired of like synth pop, all this stuff she was doing that just tr- indie pop, trying to make things literally work for her. And yeah, that was fun. I cannot deny the fact that Taylor Swift is one of the best songwriters that we have in pop right now. But the production on this was absolutely beautiful and haunting, transformative. Aaron Dessner did an amazing job. And Mm. this is the only album she could release right now. Yeah. I needed something pensive, something thoughtful. This really reminds me of the very first Taylor Swift album that we got, her debut album that is Mm -hmm. called Taylor Swift. And it just reminds me, again, of a young girl with her guitar and her ideas. And that's what I loved about Taylor Swift. Now, on the flip side, these lyrics are awful. I have not heard a single line that I enjoy. Like, they're all nonsensical, abstract, fucking catch-all, fortune cookie lyrics. And it's just a snooze fest. Like, nothing is cohesive. Nothing feels good to me. It's just kind of nice, kind of nice. And that's how I feel about the whole album. Right. She goes for nice a lot. Something that alienates me from the quote-unquote, like, gritty reality of what she's singing about, because she's going for something gritty and earthy here, is mm-hmm. that... One, again, routinely I don't know what she's talking about. And two, she insists on this dreamlike quality, this fairy tale thing. Like, again, we're bringing up Peter Pan and Wendy. There's a Gatsby aspect to the the song about the holiday house. And th- there's a kind of Baz Luhrmann level mm. majesty about everything. And I kind of just prefer in my songwriting sardonic stuff. And I wish there yeah. was a little bit more of actual humor in it. Here's my mm-hmm. thing. I think it's funny. I think that you can't deny lines like, um, oh, here we go. In my defense, <laughs> I have none. I love that fucking line. You know, I love when she's singing like the greatest films of all time were never made. Her song, Exile, What does that mean? Was- what does the greatest films of all time were never made mean? I don't okay, understand that what that means. I can abstract. That I can abstract something is that like there are beautiful stories that could have been told about a relationship, but they never got to the point where they told the story. Got that it, I thought was Here's my thing, especially because there's, also between her fan base um a lot of parsing of her sexuality with lyrics too and that there's you know songs on here which um you know have sort of like you know lesbian tent um <laughs> particularly <laughs> betty um but this is an album where it's not from her perspective too you know it's an album where she's it's called folklore because she's telling stories and doing things from other perspectives and i think that helped her step outside of the box of responding to what people were thinking about her and i would say that lyric you're like what does that mean it reminds me of um visions of gideon a song by uh sufjan stevens who oh. i would also mm-hmm. compare to this album, you know, I feel like she was emulating a lot of Sufjan's work on this. Um, yeah. I'm not Invisible String Stan. is yeah. very Sufjan. You know, Sufjan I'm not the biggest yes. Sufjan Stan. I've been getting more into him lately through my best friend, but I will say that, like, when I did listen to him um, and the work that I have really dove into, and just the the lore around Sufjan and the way that we discuss him has always been like, is he writing about Jesus? Is he writing about being gay? You know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, yeah. there's always that distance there. And I would say, like, the visions of Gideon, like, is it a video? You know, that that is talking about memories that 
don't really exist, but memories that could still be playing along in your head. I think that there is a lot of longing on this album. Totally. I think that um, there is a lot of sadness for her. I find the lyrics very evocative. Invisible String, like, there's no way you can't tell me that song isn't beautiful. Tears Ricochet, that is gorgeous. August is so fucking evocative. And don't say Cardigan. And don't say Cardigan. This girl's saying. Oh, I mean, I, I think I think Cardigan is fun, but it's a very goofy song. <laughs> and she also sold. She's also selling a Cardigan on, the, on her website. Stupid. I'm like, this marketing tool is beautiful. <laughs> uh uh-uh. And then there's a track, Mad Woman, that I wanted to tell you guys my my issues with. She has a track called Mad Woman, and then the lyrics are literally, and you'll poke the bear till her claws come out, and you'll find something to wrap your noose around. Speak to it. What do you mean? What do you mean? Why, I feel like that word is so, so invocative of something else, and I feel like I don't need to even say it, that uh, any smart person who was aware wouldn't choose that word. Mm. Historically, something I've called an issue with Taylor Swift is that I feel like her what she's interested in is pretty small. Like it's about like glorification of the drama of relationships a lot of the time. But then I think about the history of popular songwriting and namely the people we call geniuses and that we've celebrated since the beginning of rock and roll, for example, is all men glorifying women and treating aloof women as goddesses that they, that are just out of reach, etc. So in a way, Taylor Swift being the preeminent songwriter of our time is a course correction, I think. And I am happy about that. I wish there was actual gritty reality in the lyrics that she wants Mm -hmm. us to think are grittily real. I would just also argue as a person who loves melodrama, you know, like the films of Douglas Sirk, I would say that I see the longing and the sadness within the bright, poppy uh prettiness. And I think that it is, there's a thing, you know, about films like, um, written on the wind and magnificent obsession where you you see like Jane Wyman like surrounded by um beauty and surrounded by color and lushness and then she goes blind and i feel like um that makes it all the more sadder you know and i think that there is sadness and there is longing in her writing about things that connect with a lot of young girls and women, you know, and um, I think that people, you know, were also trying to bring up comparisons, you know, like Billie Eilish or like Phoebe Bridger and et cetera, whatever, you know, but I feel like this is very much um, the tradition of the music that I've been rewatching the OC, I said, like the music that we were listening to mm-hmm. that was on the OC, like music of the OC Definitely. volume four, you know, yeah. that's sort of, that's when like people were really listening to like Sufjan, Def Cat for Cutie, etc. And I think that mm-hmm. this is a female reclamation of that. We were all recently on Twitter doing that, like four albums from high school that people were listening to. And, um, if unless you were a faggot, uh, a lot of your albums were mostly just like moody men, mm-hmm. you know, like Ben Folds yeah. and Guster, shit like that. And I think that this is um, music for kids who grew up in that era and can see the um, sadness in something that is also pretty and pristine. And here I am fucking standing 
Taylor Swift. Taylor, a Swiftie, <laughs> a full Swiftie. In our, well, it's the, my last, my last thought on this album is it gave me the same feeling that Miss Americana gave me the documentary about Taylor Swift, which was not that she was giving us some type of thinly veiled attempt at vulnerability. I think this is her being her most vulnerable. I don't mm-hmm. think the veil is mm-hmm. thin. I think there's not much behind the veil. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. all I have to say. Otherwise, I like that remark. That's interesting. I run her. Mm-hmm. I run her her credit. I really do. But I mean, you're, I, she's thirty, and the lyrics feel like a seventh grade girl in my choir class wrote them and that's that's all i have to say about that i think there is more behind the veil but i also think that she isn't really willing to go there yet unfortunately i do really enjoy this album yeah is it my favorite taylor swift album no do i think it's evocative of other things yes um particularly national albums or um a Sufjan album, particularly, you know, like Carrie and Lowell, the album that he wrote after his mom's death. Um, that is an album that um, feels similar to this in in sound um, and in scope. But that album is so heartbreaking and emotional. And I, I, I will say, Lewis, that um, I disagree that there aren't good lyrics on this, but I will also agree that... I remember when we were reading that Fiona Apple interview and she was talking about how she thought that she could respect Louis C.K., but then it turned out that his comedy wasn't being honest and she couldn't respect him then. And, like, if you're an artist, you need to be, like, so vulnerable that, like, you scare yourself. And if there's one criticism of folklore, I do not think it scared Taylor Swift to make this album. Mm, that, I, I hear yeah. that. I, I will also say, by the way, my favorite thing about the album is that I think she kind of uses her voice in new new ways. It, it stems to me from the song "Lover" from the last mm. album, where her it's lower like, register. She, yeah, she finds like a lullaby quality that is not that has more in it than just coo- that soothing you. I feel mm. like there's there's something in her voice now that is you can hear reflectiveness and you can hear. A, a really deep sadness. Like to me, this album has depression in it, and that I think is well expressed and and produced very well. Yes, it's funny that we brought up Billie Eilish because I will say that there has been a shift in the way women are singing now, the way pop girls are singing now, because Billie doesn't wail. Billie doesn't ever go above three decibels and is able to have control and purity and raspiness in her voice. And it's it's a it's a beautiful thing. And I do think this is Taylor's best song album for sure. I think she sings the best on this. Yeah. yeah. It's it's such an interesting choice how she sings, I think. It's definitely her best. My favorite is still 1989 and then also Reputation, but this is this is inching up there. I, I still need more time mm-hmm. to sit with it, but I think I think it's a triumph. And also just like yeah. if I if I sound like I'm like here standing Miss Taylor now, it is because Only in contrast to me. How, it's not. It is like, well, it it is also just like how fucking nice is it to be able to listen to a Taylor Swift album without like having to have the conversation about is this about Kanye or the conversation Ugh. about like who she voted for, right? Like she's come out and been like, vote, fuck Trump, et cetera. Kanye is off in Brigadoon, I guess, <laughs> right now. And like it, 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 it is finally an album of hers that it's able to exist without all of that. And Thank fucking God, because I can just listen to the music in peace. Right, right. From beginning to end. I can actually finish this album. I mean, I'm not going to finish it again. One listen was enough. But <laughs> in theory, I could I could listen to it again. August and Seven, probably my favorite tracks, yes. And that's, that's showbiz, baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, when we're back, keep it. 
And we're back for our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Hello, 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 y'all. Hello. Who wants to go first? I can. I have a lot to say, and it's going to be angry. So here we are. First of all, keep it to the company that creates and produces this podcast, Crooked Media. Why? Um, I received a suspicious package last week, and I was (laughs) expecting um, wall art from my home. Uh, It looked to be that. It was big enough to be wall art, and it was not that. It was my concerned overlord friend, Tommy Vidor, (laughs) sending me a suggested backdrop for when we do the video portion of the show that you can see (laughs) on Snapchat. In addition to small signs of this thing that I'm about to show, he also gave me this. It is a giant John Favreau head. (gasps) Get get that the fuck off the camera. Get it off the camera. Guys, dead ass. Look at this Turn the cameras off. Get it off. Now, this is in my home. Me, Lewis, I live with it. It's now here. If I want to throw it out, I need to like call somebody. It's so huge, and he is so menacing. It's massive. And just because he he's a new father, and I'm supposed to like sympathize with him for that, but we're committed to a brand on this show, and that's not inviting John Favreau on it. So I don't know what's <laughs> happened. Now I like am obligated to like say the name. Should we just talk about the other John Favreau? This to is, fuck this with is, them. This is I know. This is offensive. I have first, I have I I got something to say. Mm-hmm. First of Go all, ahead. congratulations Girl. to Emily Favreau. Uh, congratulations to the birth of Charlie Favreau. Sure. Leo, oh, I am precious. very, very happy for her. John Favreau, I am not happy for you. <laughs> I am not Charlie happy for Run. This. I am not happy for this scheme that I know that you cooked up to get a life-sized, bigger than life-sized version of your head <laughs> on Zoom to taunt me on my birthday right. of all days. It's really sickening. John Favreau, you are dead to me. And if I were to pass you in the street, dying of thirst, I would not give you a drink of water. Butter. And I would let <laughs> the vultures have their way with you. Beautifully said. Yeah, I was propelled into this John Favreau hate that you guys maintained. <laughs> and I didn't come to understand that it is barely a bit, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this, Aida. <laughs> They sent they sent they sent a huge totem of John Favreau to Lewis's home to terrorize okay, me. Do you know absorb what? This do you know shit. what? Do you know what Crooked Media is? It's it's the Unabomber. Ted Kaczynski is my boss. They send me <laughs> suspicious packages that I open up, and now I'm stuck with it. The Kaczynski method. Look at this. It's like the monkey's fucking paw over here. Yeah. <laughs> But my real keep it this week is to my favorite Sirius XM radio station, Sirius XM The Groove, which is old school R&B, plays everything from like Earth, Wind & Fire to Lisa to Lisa. Lisa. They Come do on, Sirius that- XM. <laughs> <laughs> they do this thing where they, play, they will occasionally shift a station to be just all one artist for a week. And I was very worried that Sirius XM The Groove had turned into an all Michael Jackson station. Absolutely not. We already have talked about the conundrum of having to listen to Remember the Time and then having to not sing to it because we've canceled Michael Jackson. But I would like to cancel that Keep It because they just turned it into an all-print station, and that is exactly what I'm talking about. I just want to give a shout-out to radio in general. I I love radio because it's the only time I flip the channels anymore. It's exciting to me. It makes me think of uh, childhood in a fun way while I'm driving to and from nowhere because we don't leave our homes. Lewis, who the fuck are you? <laughs> what do you What do you dream of at night? Like, how do you have Sirius XM and you use it? How does it ail you so much? Like, 
This is like uh, you read a phone book for leisure energy that you're giving me right now. Okay. But I'm happy. And I, I'm happy that your your serious XM radio station didn't get changed. Yeah. No, I was worried it was that permanent. That did scare me for a while. Okay. Well, this week, my keep it goes to a series of things. Of course, it's always internet reactions, but also it stems in some man doing something fucking stupid. And this week it is 50 Cent, mm. who I hate talking about, but I feel like I need to talk about what happened to Meg the Stallion. Fofty? Fofty? <laughs> <laughs> so Meg, as I'm sure you guys have seen, was shot in her two feet about two weeks ago. It was right after my birthday. It was on the 12th. And, of course, that's devastating to find out that this young woman had to get surgery because she was shot in the foot by Canadian R&B singer, alleged R&B singer, Tori Lanes. And she's had to get surgery to remove bullets from both of her feet. And she took to Instagram Live a couple days ago to talk about her experience. And Baby Girl could not even finish a sentence because this is clearly the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to her. And, well, I don't want to say that because she also does talk about having to lose her parents and placing her love and time into toxic relationships like Tory Lanez or whatever was going on with that. I mean, that's still to be found out. But immediately after Meg got hurt, the internet was full of jokes about her well-being. Like, literally within seconds, 50 Cent posted a meme about it. And, of course, it was a Friday reference, the movie Friday, because 45-year-old black men, like, only have one realm of reference and one grab bag of things to talk about. And it's one fucking John Singleton movie that is amazing, but it's just... <laughs> it's the mean girls oh, of that demo. Yeah. yeah, it's the... Yeah. They need a criterion for niggas. Like, I'm not <laughs> expecting... I'm not expecting people to sit there and watch... Um, the Handmaid, you know, like the 60s. Um, yes. Japanese. Umbrellas of Shorebark. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah um, but can we get like a criterion with some black shit? Diversify. So don't have to get the same reference constantly. The same Ricky joke all the time. I'm tired of it. And but so he posted that meme and immediately deleted it and took social media again to apologize it is so frustrating to see him apologizing for something he clearly has no remorse in and mm -hmm. is just pressured to do so this happens all the time like i feel like my keep it every time is stop being on fuck shit and stop lying and pretending like you care when you don't especially when you're someone who has clearly not valued black women in their bodies for the whole of your career and more sadly you probably don't even value your own body this is the same man who made a whole career of capitalizing off the fact that he was shot nine times. So mm -hmm. my heart is breaking. My heart is not just breaking for Meg. My heart is breaking for her having to read all these comments. And five minutes ago, we loved Meg and we wanted to see her dancing. And now the girl is in physical pain and nobody is there to help. Like It's also other women, you know, like, um, yes. sh shout out to Drea. Boo, uh, bitch. Who, who I believe got her Fenty partnership snatched. Um, and photos of her removed from the Instagram um, because she made a joke about men getting shot. And I'm like, why are you making jokes about her being shot at all? Yeah. You know? Uh, Immediately. Chrissy Teigen got dragged, too. Her joke actually wasn't even about men getting shot. Uh, people were doing this dumb meme on Twitter that, that, that is always happening. There's always some dumb meme on Twitter. But this was the one where it was like... Um, I'd make a joke about writers, but like mm. I have to turn it in late, like like something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. hers was like, I have a joke about Meg Thee Stallion, but I have to twerk on it. Stupid, mm. yeah, you know. Funny. It's that just like stupid. okay, but I like, get it. It's you know, she's like she loves she loves Megan. She wasn't thinking about the being shot um, incident, but 
you know, she was dragged because it was like, now's not the time to be making jokes about men. Yeah. And people did just, bring up that, you know, like there's the time that we've talked about it on a show before too, you know, her Covenza Day Walls incident, you know. So, you know, I think mm-hmm. that like people weren't ready to check for Chrissy and a um, joke about a black woman right now. Also, by the way, I just want to say the way we heard about this Megan the Stallion incident was just through what we've heard from Megan the Stallion herself on Instagram. It's like a very strange. The media is doing a shitty job, a very shitty job. Right. It's like, yeah. I, I, it, it, it's very unclear to me what is going on and it seems just horrible. And she's just like, it's like tip of the iceberg, what we know. So it's very yeah. scary. It's wild. Cause it feels like for any other incident, like this should be bigger news and the media yeah. TMZ some shit should be digging into what really happened I and know. we're not really getting answers and it frustrates me so much and it also just frustrates me that um, nobody is running over Tory Lanez in the streets exactly uh, you know exactly. and but we've seen you know with incidents like Takashi uh, Chris Brown people with violence towards women who are men they just sort of get away with it, you know? Mm-hmm. How long did it take to cancel Robert Kelly? So If we've even. I feel, if we've I, even. I, right? I feel, for, um, I feel for Megan so much, um, and it must be so horrible to see something horrendous like this happen to you and see the media sort of not really care and to also just see um, people in your own community making jokes about it. Also, Meg hasn't even fully talked, and maybe she won't, but talk about the terror that happened because I was on TMZ this morning and they had recently released a video, like footage of her getting out of the car with blood coming out of her feet and just her not being able to move, but the cops telling her to move and her hands are in the air and it's very painful. I would not recommend watching it, but yeah, so things are coming out, but I do understand also, yeah, the media is not covering it. We're not getting full information, and why would we? Because Meg Thee Stallion is a black woman, so <sighs> peace with her. Okay, sorry. What is your keep it, Ira? My keep it this week is to Christopher Nolan. Mm. Oh, right. And, and Warner Brothers, who are continuing to pretend like this movie Tenet is going to come out this year. <laughs> who 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 are also insistent that it needs to come out this year. Do we need this movie right now? <laughs> it the 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 release date has been pushed back so many times and now it's been announced that Tenet will be released internationally in August ahead of a US debut in select cities over Labor Day weekend. What is going to change between now and Labor Day weekend where my ass is going to feel comfortable being up in a movie theater? Period. I appreciated Billy Eichner's tweet about it, which is if they wanted to really fuck with us, they'd say they released Tenet in summer 2017. (laughs) (laughs) And then the fact that it's now going to be released internationally. So what? Either one, the movie's going to leak online Mm -hmm. or uh, so, hey, Keep it, listeners, uh, um, in Paris. Uh, if you want to go see Tenet, you know, just roll up to the movie theater and say, Bonjour, <laughs> un billet pour Tenet, s'il vous plaît. Bring your camcorder, uh, do some recording, and then send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> the pronunciation of camcorder was particularly horrible. I just want to yeah. know. I'm the giving idea- him, though, Lewis, birthday pass. I guess. One birthday pass today. Uh, 
But no, it's either going to leak or we'll at least be able to read the fucking Wikipedia description. I, I just do not get the insistence that this movie needs to come out this year. Right in August, September. Like, is is it a stealth campaign for Biden? Right. Yeah. What's the urgency? Like, is it a is it is it a get out the vote <laughs> thing? Like, does it need to drop before election day? I right. don't James get Bond's it. like I, James Bond's like check me out in 2021. I don't care. But. Mulan. <laughs> yeah. Wonder Woman. Like, what is the tea? <laughs> The, the the vaccine is in the movie, and they've just been putting it <laughs> yeah. We'll know soon. We'll know very soon. Uh, Christopher Nolan, chill the fuck out. <laughs> Truly. Incept yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Learn from this and grow. When, when, when a fucking coronavirus outbreak happens because some people crowded into uh, a movie theater to see this flick, and you know they will. Because you, ha- you just had white people up in the Hamptons going to see a fucking Chainsmokers concert <laughs> with an opening set from the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who's a DJ, apparently. What miss- is wrong with your people, Lewis? I, I would love to know. Because I know that, because I can guarantee there wasn't a single black person at that Chainsmokers concert. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, that's our show this week. Yep. Au revoir to our listeners uh, who will be seeing Tenet very soon. Uh, thank you to Katori Hall. And once again, congratulations to Emily Favreau and newborn baby Charlie Favreau. Mm. None for John Favreau. And also, once again, happy birthday to Ira, a.k.a. Leslie Caron. <laughs> happy birthday, girl. A bientôt. <laughs> Keep It is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our digital team is Nadine Mokonian and Milo Kent. Thank you to Brian Sebel for production support every week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.